0: Uh, Last time that I was uh, up here, uh, had the pleasure of preaching, teaching on Sunday morning, here instead of in the high school room, Uh, my parents were here. It was Father's Day. Uh, Today, my brother, oldest brother, and his family are coming through town, and so they thought they'd drop in and see what I do on Sundays. (laughs) So uh, they're here, right over here, uh, four of the six, Gary and Debbie, and their uh, children, Allison and Andrea. And uh, they like me, or I like them, have three girls first and then a boy. It seems like I've been following my brother all my life, <laughs> uh, all the way through school and everything that I did. But uh, we're excited to have them here with us this morning. Uh, this is uh, the weekend that we celebrate Labor Day. Uh, tomorrow's that national holiday. Uh, does anybody know how long that national holiday has been going on by chance? Uh, quite a long time. Uh, I, I did find that out this week. I'll let you know in a minute or two. But uh, Labor Day for me has always been a good news, bad news situation. The good news is it's a three day weekend, unless you're working for HP. Now it's a four day weekend, <laughs> five day weekend, five day weekend. <laughs> uh, but the, the, uh, the bad news, especially when I was growing up, was that school always started right after Labor Day. You know, you knew that you came to the end of summer when Labor Day uh, was there. And for the last 10 or 12 years, I haven't had to be too concerned with that. But I now have my oldest uh, child who is entering into first grade and a covey of kids uh, behind her. So that from uh, the next few years, I'll be uh, reminded as to what the bad side, the bad news of Labor Day is, the start of school once again. And uh, Labor Day actually started in 1882 by the Knights uh, of Labor. I found this out when I knew that I needed to discover this truth on my own because the staff around here didn't have a clue as to when Labor Day started. They only knew that they got that day off what they were concerned about and then uh, in 1894 the congress uh, made a national holiday it's always been a monday holiday it's not one of those holidays they shift to make a three-day weekend and so we've been able to enjoy it since that time and you look at me and say well that's fantastic those are life-changing truths this morning (laughs) what has monday's labor day got to do with sunday today Well, I feel that all of us uh, spend a great deal of time laboring or working, whether we are out in the business community slaying dragons or whether we are working at home being slayed by the dragons. Uh, We are all involved in some kind of activity or work. We work for uh, the house we live in, the food we eat, the uh, clothes we wear. Uh, We labor hard to go on a vacation Only to return to labor hard to pay for the vacation that we went on. And uh, then if we want to go to college or send our children to college, we work hard for that. So those things that are most important to us, those things that are a high priority in our life, we work hard to accomplish them. And then there are also things that we want to have in life, but they may not be at the same level. Uh, A lot of us would want to have a good relationship with God, a good relationship with our spouse, a good relationship with our kids, a good relationship with our neighbor. And uh, we want to to change ourselves if possible. Uh, We might want to become a little rounder or a little thinner or whatever. Uh, I know for myself, I wish I had the endurance that I had 20 years ago so that I could play tennis a little bit better and ski a little bit better. And even though I want that, I don't really work hard enough or very hard uh, at it. And when I was in college, I learned this truth very well, that you always have time to do the things that you really want to do. And since that time, uh, if you're like me, the problem is not so much figuring out what it is that I want to do. It's trying to decide what are the things that I should be doing. And for all of us, life is at least three-dimensional. By that I mean life is lived in the physical sphere, in the mental sphere, and in the spiritual sphere. And we don't have a a great deal of problem functioning either in the physical or the mental area, but the spiritual area becomes a little bit tougher for us. Uh, Some people aren't really aware that the spiritual sphere actually exists. And that's why I like the scriptures, is because they encourage me to maintain a balance in my life. Uh, the Bible reminds me of those things that I should be focusing in on, not to lose track of or to lose sight of. And so this morning, uh, since it is a Labor Day weekend, I thought it would be good for us to consider. Uh, for what do we labor? So if you open with me to John uh, chapter 6. And we'll work our way through those verses that uh, Wayne read for us this morning. By the way, Wayne, next time I ask you to come up, it might be to do the whole sermon, so... It's important that we understand uh, the context uh, of this narrative that uh, starts in the first part of chapter 6. And this is... um, the Feeding of the 5,000, one of the seven miracles that John has chosen to write about in his gospel. And uh, the disciples were hoping to have a no-host supper, but their leader, Jesus, wanted to host the whole clam bake, And they weren't too excited about that. They were a little bit bewildered, yet uh, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, hey, there's a lad here who has five loaves and two fish. So I'm covered. Now the rest of you 11 guys go out and do that, and we'll all have enough to eat. And Jesus uh, saw the crowd there and uh, what was provided. The story says that he uh, broke the bread and gave thanks to God, and he multiplied it so that they all ate and were filled. That means they all pigged out. There were 12 baskets full left after this meal. They had plenty to eat. It's kind of like one of our uh, church potlucks at the park. There's always enough to go around a second time. A friend of mine in seminary told me that free food always tastes better. And uh, I think there's some great truth to that. seems that I always enjoy food more when I'm not paying for it. And these people, (coughs) this crowd... Uh, were filled, they had enjoyed a good meal. and so they made a great statement, observation in verse 14. When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, "This is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world." They said, "Hey, we've been told that someone like Moses is to come and deliver us. And Moses fed the people, and this person fed us. He must be the prophet that they're talking about so they immediately formed a committee and told this committee and said your job is to go make Jesus king of all the Jews and Jesus was not too thrilled with the idea so he sent his disciples off on a boat to the other side of the lake because he didn't want uh, his disciples to be negatively influenced by this crowd and he took off up on the mountaintop uh, to spend some time alone with God the Father then the night came The winds came up on the lake, his disciples were having a hard time, and Jesus walks out on the lake uh, to help them out. And this is where we pick up the story, uh, is the next day, the next morning, uh, this group is out looking for Chef Jesus. The next day, in verse 22, the multitude that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, And that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Apparently they were able to observe by looking at the marina that there was only one other boat by which Jesus could possibly have left. He did not leave with his disciples, so he must still be around somewhere. And they're thinking, you know, if we want breakfast, we've got to go find this guy. And word had spread Uh, about him and the miracle so that there were people who were coming from other areas to get in on the action. You know, when there's something good going on and people hear about it, they always want to get in on whatever it may be. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So this group is beginning to form and yet uh, they aren't able to find uh, Jesus. They're hungry Uh, they're wanting to be fed some more, and yet he's not around. So they do the logical thing, they decide to form a search committee. When the multitude therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. They knew that their steak and eggs breakfast was uh, not much hope for it if they didn't find Chef Jesus, so they take off looking for him. And uh, this is where we enter into the important part uh, of the the story. This is the dialogue that takes place between Jesus and the multitude. They say, Jesus answers. They say, Jesus answers. So here we have uh, the opening of that, their first question. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? That's a very appropriate, curious question. But as I thought about it, uh, it indicated to me that their focus was a little bit off. Because if, if I was in that place, I hope that I wouldn't be asking when he got there. If I knew that the boat he could take was back at some other place, I'd be asking, how? How did you get here? Or uh, why? Why did you come here? Why did you stay over there and feed us? Why did you come clear over here? But I think their stomachs were growling and they were focusing in on the physical aspect of life. They were somewhat blind to the spiritual ramifications of what was taking place around them and the presence of the person that was with them. And Jesus uh, very uh, gently just chooses to pass over this particular question, as he does oftentimes when he sees the question is not leading where he would like to go, and he moves to the heart of the issue. Jesus answered and said to them. And note what he says. Last week Brian told us about this particular warning flag. Whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, you need to be like a dog who perks up its ears to hear the sound. It's uh, important words are coming up. So he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus knew why the crowd was coming to him. It wasn't for spiritual reasons, it was for physical reasons. And he wanted the crowd to face up to that fact as well. He just wanted them to know what they were doing. And he wasn't uh, disappointed, I think, in their seeking, but it was why they were seeking. And he says it wasn't because of the signs. And when you look back uh, in John, you find that Jesus had already done one miracle. The town of Canaan was not too far away. It was in the district of Galilee. And that's where Jesus attended a wedding and changed the water into wine. And then uh, he also healed, earlier in John, the nobleman's son from Capernaum. So there's a a miraculous healing that's taken place right in that area. And then in verse 2, In chapter 6, it says, And a great multitude was following him because they were seeing the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So he was performing signs on sick people right before their very eyes. And then they were a part of this miracle. They had benefited directly from the feeding of the 5,000. So you see, they had all these signs around them. And yet, because their focus was on the physical aspect the material aspect of life, they were blind to what was taking place around them spiritually. And Jesus confronts them with that. Now, I can hardly uh, fault them for that. It would be difficult for me to do that. Because I look back at my own life. Uh, when I was a teenager of 17 and investigating the claims of Christianity, uh, I thought to myself, you know. Even though I'm a a good athlete and a good student and a pretty hot person myself, uh, if God was on my side, he could make things even better for me. He could make me a better athlete, a better student, uh, provide me with more friends, and make me financially successful in the long run. And of course he would want to do that. God would do that so that he would look good. He wants himself to look good. And if I happen to look good on the side... And that's great for me, just a fringe benefit. So I have a hard time. I can identify with these people where they're coming from. I once attended a faith healing service in which the minister was attempting to heal people of emotional and physical ailments. And yet the sad thing as I watched the crowd is that I noticed the expectation of the crowd. What they expected was that Jesus would be the quick physical fix for them. He was to be the magician who would work the wonder. And they focused in primarily on the physical aspect of life. And they had the idea, if he fills my tummy, then he's worthy of my consideration. If he doesn't fill my tummy, if he doesn't fix my ailment, then he isn't worthy of my consideration. And I thought, you know, I think we all get into that trap once in a while. We all play games with God. And the danger is that we make God into a cosmic Santa Claus. We say, God, if you'll do these things for me, if you'll do what I want you to do, then I'll respond to you. See, we miss the fact that God's perspective is the most important perspective, not our perspective. We miss the key to what life is really all about. And so Jesus... Uh, goes on to give them a penetrating exhortation in verse, where are we here? 27. He says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Uh, Jesus had given them the food to eat. It wasn't wrong for them to eat that food. But that wasn't, uh, the, the whole story. The reason he gave them the food was not just that they would be filled up in their stomachs, but they would recognize something. And the food that they ate was obviously going to perish. The things that we work for in life are going to perish. The cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the house we live in, the recreational equipment that we have, it's all going to perish. And to God's grief, a number of people are going to perish with those things because they haven't uh, come to an understanding what life is really all about. See, back in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 6, uh, Jesus makes a statement. He says, uh, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is also. See, whatever we're hanging on to, whatever's most valuable to us, whatever our treasure is... That's what our, where our heart is. See, if our treasure is in the money we make, if our treasure is where we live, if our treasure is in who we think we are, the people we know, that's going to leave us short. But that's where our heart is at. And Jesus is saying we need to redirect where our heart is at. We need to, to discover the real treasure of life. Uh, Peter Waranga shared with me Uh, from the comic strip Doonesbury this last week, uh, an illustration that I thought was (coughs) appropriate for today. I don't know how many of you are Doonesbury fans. I don't read it regularly, but once in a while. And I'll try to to read this as best so you can visualize the comic strip. Uh, Michael is sitting at the uh, desk of the secretary, uh, Cassie, and Michael's wife is J.J. And he says to the secretary, Cassie? J.J. asked me to pass along a question to you. What's that, Michael? Well, ever since we got married, she's been feeling the usual pressure to have it all, or at least most of it. "Uh Uh-huh, replies Cassie. Michael says, she wants to know how you manage to keep all the balls up in the air at the same time. How do you balance a demanding career, a family, a social life, without losing your mind? Simple, replies Cassie, I have insomnia, no friends, kids I barely know, and a husband who's about to file for separation. Oh, replies Michael, "uh, mind if I dress that answer up a little bit? Not at all, says Cassie. Tell her I just smiled modestly as I slipped out for handball. So that comic strip, the reason we identify with it is because it's true our life, that we struggle in these areas of determining what is valuable and what is not valuable. And it's hard for us uh, to do that on a regular basis. And Jesus confronts these people and says, It's not the food that perishes, but the important thing in life is to work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. Now, there's some things here we should observe. One is that the Son of Man is actually Jesus. That's a title commonly used to refer to him. The second thing is that he says eternal life is a gift. We work hard for some of the unimportant things of life. The most important thing in life is given to us, Jesus says. That's eternal life. That's a relationship with God. And the fact that... Uh, What is eternal life? It's nothing more than knowing Jesus Christ, as we've sung about. It's loving Him, loving God in that way. And eternal life is, is not only a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. See, the quantity of life is that we will indeed live with God forever. But it doesn't start when we die. It starts when we start that relationship with God. For me, it started when I was 17 years old. And then there's the quality of life. What is the quality of eternal life? Well, it's when the power of the Holy Spirit invades our life and makes us more Christ-like, makes us more loving, more righteous, more caring, more thoughtful, more forgiving. That's the quality of eternal life. And those are the things that Jesus is trying to get across to these people. And just as we are interested in eternal life, uh, these people as well are interested in eternal life. They said therefore to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? You see, they saw that they had an opportunity to gain something. They said, Well, all we have to do is work for it, and it will be ours. They thought God was the foreman of a construction project. And all they had to do was sign up as the subcontractors for that construction project, do their work, and when the project was finished, then they'd get their reward. That's what takes place in the multipurpose room. There's a foreman and subcontractors. When the work is done, they will be paid. And that's what these people were thinking. If we do the work, we'll get the benefit. A lot of people today are thinking that, that in order to make it with God... That there is a big scale of justice in the sky. Hang out like this. You have the balances on the bottom. you got the bad deeds, you know, kind of going down this way. Then you got the good deeds you hope are pulling back this way. If the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds, then you're set. You've made it. And God says, no, that's not how the game is played. That's not the way that you inherit eternal life. You cannot earn it. It's given to you. And Jesus says, the way that you do the works of God, in verse 29, when he responds to them, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's the work, is that we believe. So the work is not done with our head, our hands, our feet, through blood, sweat, and tears. The work is done in our heart. The work is done by believing. But he's not talking about a mere intellectual acceptance of facts, to see something that's true and then to acknowledge it. He's saying that it's seeing the facts and applying those facts to your life. That's believing. And you all have probably heard the illustrations of of exercising faith or belief. You are exercising belief in the chairs that you're sitting in right now because you're trusting them to hold you up, that they're not going to collapse. We exercise belief in an elevator when we step into it and it takes us up or it takes us down to our destination. We exercise belief when we step onto that airplane and we take off. Though I'll admit my belief system is uh, going under question a little bit these days in airplanes. But the best illustration I've ever heard of with respect to belief is the one about an 1890s tightrope walker named Blondin. And Blondin put a tightrope across Niagara Falls from the U.S. side to Canada. And with 10,000 cheering people below, he inched his way across, slowly, from the Canadian side to the U.S. side. And when he got to the U.S. side, all the people stood up, cheered, Blondin! 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 And he put his hands up to the crowd, and he said, as he quieted them down, I am Blondin. Do you believe in me? And they were ecstatic. We believe. We believe. We believe. He put his hands up again, quieted the crowd. He said, I'm going to go back across that rope, and I'm going to take somebody with me on my back. Do you believe I can do that? We believe. We believe! They shout out again. He put his hands up another time, one last time, quieted the crowd. He said, who will be that person? And it was utter silence. (laughs) And finally, one person came out of the crowd and said, I'll do it. I believe you. I'll go with you. And for three and a half hours, Blondin inched his way back across to the other side. Now the point of that story is blatantly clear. Ten thousand people said, we believe. Only one person really believed. You see, belief is a matter of putting your life into the hands of the one that you believe. It's a matter of commitment. It's a matter of exercising trust. Putting your heart into action. And that's the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about here. And he uses a a present tense verb indicating continuous action. Which means that belief in Jesus is not a one-time deal. It's not a pray the prayer and I've got my fire insurance policy paid up. No, he's talking about a daily belief, ongoing action. That we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That he lived, that he died for my sins, that he rose again to give me a new life, a new opportunity to have victory over sin, over selfishness, so that I might experience the quality of life that God intended for me to experience. Now these people, they've got to be the hardest people in the world to get through to. I'm convinced, even though this is Israel, that they grew up in Missouri. I am convinced these people are from the show-me state. You look at verse 30. They're a stubborn bunch. They said therefore to him, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Now, can you imagine that? What has just taken place... They have the nerve, the gall to say to Jesus, what do you do? Moses, now, that's a man of great power. You see, he fed us for 40 years, three times a day. All you've done is one meal, one day. Big deal. Can you do something? You know, he had just done these things before their eyes. And they were so spiritually blind and so stubborn. They said, what do you do that we should believe who you are. And I was thinking, you know, if I was Jesus with this crowd, I'd have done one of two things. Either I would have walked away shaking my head in amazement and disgust and said, I can't believe this is actually happening. Or I would have totally lost my cool and let them know what turkeys and idiots I really thought they were. Probably for me, the latter would have been what I would have done. But fortunately for them and for me, I'm not Jesus. So Jesus very patiently uh, corrects this misunderstanding. He says in uh, 32, Truly, truly, perk up your ears, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Now he wants to let them know that they're wrong on two counts. First of all, it wasn't Moses, it was God who provided the bread out of heaven. And secondly, the bread that he provided for them, the manna, not only was it to sustain them physically, but it was to lead them to a deeper understanding that God could provide for them the spiritual life that they would need, that he wanted them to have. And that would come through a relationship with Jesus. Then he also goes on to uh, correct their understanding with with what true bread really is. He clarifies it for us. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Two things about this bread. First of all, it comes down out of heaven. It's spiritual. It's in a spiritual sphere. Different than the physical bread that you buy at the store. Secondly, he says it, it gives life to the world. The purpose, the character of it, is that it gives life to the world. Now, there are numerous instances elsewhere in Scripture that talk about Jesus being that life-giving source. If we were to turn back to John chapter 5, a couple of pages back, verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life And does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Remember what I said about eternal life? It begins now, here, not when we die. And then also in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. And then in chapter 14 again, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. See, the scriptures make it very clear that Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He is the source, the one who gives us life. Now, even though uh, the interest of the crowd had been aroused, and they now wanted the bread, they were not necessarily correct in their understanding, as we see in verse 34. They said therefore to him, Sir, evermore give us this bread. For those who know the story of the woman at the well... Jesus talked with her and raised her attention, her interest level, in the water. And she said, Lord, give me the water, the eternal water. And she missed the point. She said, I don't want to have to come to this well again and draw. Give me the water. She's thinking physical. Jesus is thinking spiritual. Here again, these people are saying, Give us this bread. We won't have to go to the store anymore. We won't have to bake it anymore. Bread was a staple to their life. They thought they'd had had it made. They're thinking physical. Jesus is thinking spiritual. And that, perhaps, is an easy mistake for us to make at times, confusing the physical and the spiritual. But it's a very dangerous and mis- damaging mistake that we make in our life when we confuse the two. So Jesus, once again, I think he takes a deep breath, Respond to uh, their level of understanding. Verse 35, he says to them, "I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst." The way that this sentence is, construction, is constructed, it's very emphatic. When he says "I am," it's almost like Jesus is taking his finger and saying, "I'm it. I am the one." Get the picture? I am the bread that I'm talking about. Look at me, gang. Get the idea. I am the bread of life. And the point that he is making is that he is the satisfaction for life. He is the one that gives us the total fulfillment for life. When he says that you shall not hunger, and he who believes in him shall never thirst. That's not talking about physical Arius is talking about spiritual areas. He's talking about the quality, the totality of life. He's giving us the bottom line to life. That if we have a relationship with him, if we believe in him, then we have life as God intended it for be. We are fulfilled in life. And that's the the essence of, of the idea of hunger and thirst here. And yet... Uh, We struggle greatly with that idea because we think that fulfillment, that our hunger, that our thirst will be satisfied by the amount of money we make, by the clothes that we wear, by the car that we drive, by the house that we live in, by the people we know, by the clubs we belong to, by the hobbies we have, by the sports that we play. Everything that we do, we think, will give us that satisfaction, that fulfillment. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not it. It's not what you have that counts, he's saying. It's who you are in light of God's grace. That's where fulfillment comes in life. That's where satisfaction comes about. The Apostle Paul was able to pick up on this. In Philippians, uh, he wrote about it says, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but manure in order that I may gain Christ. You see, Paul said the rest of the things in life in comparison to Christ are really like manure. They're worthless in comparison to knowing God. And you think of uh, J.J. and the illustration of Doonesbury. See, she thought Cassie had it all. She wanted to have it all. But what did she end up having? Insomnia. No friends. Kids she barely knew. And a husband about to file for separation. Uh, Augustine. A great theologian. Of uh, many years ago uh, had many struggles in his life but he came to the conclusion saying thou hast made us for thyself O God and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you and I can relate to that because as a teenager at 17 I had it all and I'm on the line here you can ask my brother afterwards I had a good home. I had wealthy parents. I had athletic success. I had academic success. I had friends. I was on my way to one of the best schools in the country, according to my opinion. But from my point of view, I had it all. And yet, I really didn't. I knew myself well enough to know that I wasn't satisfied, that I really wasn't fulfilled, that there were some things in life that I wasn't aware of. There had to be more to life than what I was experiencing. All the pieces of the puzzle just were not fitting together the way that they should. And so it was at that time that I made a decision that there has to be a spiritual dimension to life. And that Jesus Christ is the key to the life that he can give us. And what is it that takes away the hunger? What is it that quenches the thirst? It's that invaluable relationship with God. Sometimes we think that it's the Visa card or the Master Charge card. If you listen to the commercials, they try to convince you. You know, Master Charge, give me a free vacation or... I don't want to do anything. Or you listen to the Michelob Light commercial. It says, you can have it all. You know, you got a Michelob Light, you've got it all. Well, see, we're being sold a false bill of goods. That's not how we have it all. But seeing is not necessarily believing. In verse 36. But I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. These people had front row seats eyewitnesses to the incarnate Son of God. They were seeing things that people will never see again. We won't have an opportunity to see Jesus the way they did. And yet some of them still walked away hungry. Some of them still walked away thirsty. Some of them still walked away missing the point of life. And I think that was the distressing, grieving, hurtful thing for the Lord in this passage. And this is where the dialogue ends. And in the next four verses, five, four or five verses, Jesus talks about what his will is and what the will of the Father is. What he would like to do and what the Father would desire to have done. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that all... That he gives has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Theologians have spent uh, years studying these concepts. On the surface, they seem to be very simple, easy to understand, but then when you try to explain them, they become a little bit more difficult. And... uh, Fortunately for me, I don't have time to go into all of these concepts this morning, other than to say that I believe the scriptures to be true. Therefore, I believe these concepts to be true. That God does want to know us. That Jesus will raise us up in a spiritual sense on the last day, whenever that last day is. And that those who become Christians, God holds strongly in his hand. But uh, I am saved by the bell, so to speak, this morning. As we have some other things uh, to do, you can see the sharing of communion. But as we close, I'd like to bring us back full circle to where I started this morning with the idea of Labor Day. And to, to ask again the question, for what are we laboring in life? Many of you, I know, know and love God. Just as I do. And yet I have to ask myself the question occasionally because I get confused. I see ads on TV. I see ads on billboards. I hear ads on the radio. And my mind begins to think more on a worldly perspective than a spiritual perspective. And I have to ask myself, am I using my time, my energies, my resources to help advance the kingdom of God? Or am I buying a false bill of goods, am I being sucked away by the tantalizing delights of the world that are so enticing to me? So I would ask you to to ask yourselves that, and for some of you this morning who are here and are struggling, you don't know God, you're not sure if you want to know God, let me ask you to consider these same concepts with respect to the meaning of life and the value of life. I'd like to close in a prayer this morning, and if this prayer expresses the desire of your heart, then I'd like for you to follow along with me. Remember, God's not concerned about people who raise hands or people who walk down aisles or people who mouth prayers. He's concerned with the attitude and the condition of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you as humble, needy people, thankful for the gift of your Son, thankful that uh, you have made life with you a gift that we can receive freely. I thank you that I can't earn it because I would try desperately if I thought that I could. Father, we we ask that uh, you would forgive us for being sinful people, for being proud, for being self-righteous, for rebelling against you. We pray that you would come into our life. Enter into our hearts. Make us the kind of people or the kind of person that you intended for me to be. Give me that life that your son talks about in this chapter. Help me to know what it means to know him and the power of his resurrection and to be changed and made new. Help us, Father, to rely upon you for everyday decisions. Help us to believe in you moment by moment. For we pray in the power and matchless name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen.